Are you a hybrid athlete who wants to learn more about how to combine your strength and endurance training? Well, I've written a new book, The Science of Hybrid Training. In this book, I provide insight into the misconceptions surrounding strength and endurance training by distilling the past 50 years of research and drawing on the conversations I had with great scientists, coaches, and athletes on the Progress Theory podcast. This book is essential reading for hybrid athletes and coaches who are looking to understand the key training variables and their effect on the simultaneous development of strength and endurance performance. Get your copy now, available to buy from Amazon. Now, let's get into the show. Hello and welcome to The Progress Theory, where we discuss scientific principles for optimising human performance. My name is Dr Phil Price, and on today's episode, we're joined by English Institute of Sport S&C coach for the GB swim team, Andy Elkins. Now, if we think of running and rowing, we're always pushing ourselves away from something like the ground or the rowing machine. So their movements are relatively similar. However, in swimming, we're suspended in water, so we're kicking and pulling ourselves through the water to move. So how do we physically prepare for swimming? Well, in this episode, Andy and I discussed the land-based determinants of swimming performance, how we should focus on developing certain positions before we load through them, and some tips on S&C so you can develop and improve your swimming performance. But before we get into the episode, I just want to tell you a little bit about our sponsors, because without them, this podcast would not be possible. I wanted to express my gratitude to my production partner, Cult Media. Cult Media has been instrumental in the development and success of the Progress Theory. They have created brand guides, comprehensive podcast strategies, enhanced the podcast production, developed custom workflows for me, and edited and mixed all of the video, audio, and social media content. Cult Media's simple coach, create, and collaborate process has saved me hundreds of hours in podcast production, resolved countless technical issues, and consistently helped me to improve my podcasting game. So if you want to establish and engage your audience or are ready to launch your own podcast, head to www.cult.media, that's cult with a K, to learn more. Also, thank you to Human24, fueling human potential and optimizing everyday human performance and well-being. The supplement range at Human24 not only helps improve your lifestyle, it optimizes it. The Human24 products are designed to fit around your circadian rhythms from the moment you wake up to key moments in the day when you need optimal focus to getting the best night's sleep. There is a product to optimize each phase of the day. My personal favorite is the Live On Form Pack, consisting of the products Rise, Flow, and Pre-Sleep. Rise is for the morning, and it's my absolute favorite. It's a drink that tastes amazing, it hydrates me, and improves my focus to win the morning. At 2 p.m., I take Flow, which is a caffeine-free nootropic, perfect for improving alertness and concentration during that mid-afternoon slump. And finally, I take pre-sleep just before bed, which is a comprehensive nighttime complex, perfect to support a performance-driven lifestyle. Check out the website www.hmn24.com for all their products, articles, and links to their awesome podcast for those wanting to learn more about human performance. You can even check out the episode I did with them. I thoroughly enjoyed my chat with Phil Lerney, co-founder of Human24, and it has led to an awesome collaboration with Human24 supporting the progress theory. If you want a 10% discount on all 
Human24 products, head to their website via the links in our Instagram bios of The Progress Theory or my personal Instagram account at Dr. Phil Price, or use the code PhilPrice at checkout. As always, follow The Progress Theory on Instagram and YouTube. Head to our website, theprogresstheory.com, and check out all of our other episodes. Here is Andy Elkins. Andy, how are we doing? Hi, Phil. Yeah, very well. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing really well. Doing really well. I've got to ask, first of all, with the success of the GB swim team at the Tokyo Olympics, what's swimming been like over the past year? It's it's still a very, very good environment to work in and was an exciting, an exciting environment <laughs> to work. Working work yeah. all the way up to the games, games even with uh even with the challenges of COVID. So feel very we're very fortunate, or I feel very fortunate that that we have massive buy-in from from the group of athletes who we've got here mm. where I where I'm based down in Bath. And whatever you ask of them, they they're they're willing to go through, which is which goes hand in hand, I guess, with a physical preparation sport. So it's um yeah, it's 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 a somewhat of an easy gig, I guess you could say as a as an S and C coach, if, if you've got a bunch of guys in front of you that want to they want to work hard to to go quicker in a stopwatch mm. sport, but yeah, it's it's definitely been exciting to see the guys get the results that they 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 deserve from that from the work that they put in. Yeah, and uh, COVID COVID certainly helped, as I would say, given that it's an early specialisation sport, and we had a couple of young guys that may have been on the fringes on Tokyo 1.0, and certainly that extra extra year certainly helped those guys step a little bit further up the podium, which is great to see. Oh, cool. Well, well I mean. I, I wanted to ask that question first of all because there always seems to be that one sport that really does well each Olympic cycle uh, and there's like a load of media attention on it and there's a real buzz and real culture boost because of it and it seemed like swimming was this year's one well it was actually last year we're recording here in 2022 <laughs> so it was really quite interesting to see like does that buzz really sort of carry over to everything you're, you're you know you're doing post Olympics it was there beforehand so no wonder you had the success that you had absolutely i think well yeah it's the the number one goal in every four-year cycle is is the olympics isn't it so it's the it's the Mm. premier competition for those guys so the coach that i work with talks a lot about the olympic shift within a four-year cycle so the the guys are really good and really dedicated for the, the first three years, but then there's a there's a conscious right. It's, it's 365 days to go. Let's not leave any I's undotted or T's uncrossed. I guess so. That's that that was very um, hmm. present, and yeah, you could you could feel that the closer the games got to. Um, right now, yeah, guys are back in full training from January. Some have had had longer breaks, as many athletes do after a game. So some some three months, some four, some dipping in and out with uh, some of the other competitions going on. So the phenomenon that is uh, post-Olympic blues certainly does, mm. does kind of blow through a little bit in that, those three months with some of the guys. But as, as we speak right now, we're recording in, in January 2022, as you've already said, yeah, people are locked on and that, that Olympic shift is mm. starting, to, starting to come to the surface again, given we're uh, less, less than three years away from the next one. Yeah, of course, yeah. Well, shall we start by, you know, do you want to give a bit of a description about what you currently do and maybe your SNC career leading up to that? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, um, 
I'm probably going to feel a little bit old now around hmm. uh, describing my career career route. But as as many SNC coaches, I, I started uh, doing a sports science undergrad between 2004 and seven, and then uh, took the was lucky enough to do uh, an unpaid work placement in professional rugby at Gloucester Rugby Club. Did that for about a season and a half, and then paid the bills by PTing in in the evening. So I suppose that's exercising worth work ethic. After that, I moved to a company called Core Cambridge, who were a private S&C centre. Um, they no longer exist, and unfortunately, but they've, they've produced a number of good, good co- S&C coaches that, that work in the high-performance yeah, system. Yeah, I remember um, them, yeah. A lot of good guys there. Yes, I, I think I, it was, I, I was there for around four years, um, and I think it was invaluable, really. So it was a mixture of, there was some PT in there, there was some work with development athletes, and there's some work with some athletes within the, within the university systems there and, and some of the kind of the rugby clubs around the area. Other athletes like um, there's a good good MMA gym there at the, at the time. But what, what it taught you is you, you, did a, you did a huge amount of coaching hours that time. So you're looking at probably 30 hours of coaching a week on the floor. So you really kind of learn your craft and learn how to work with people that aren't your typical elite athletes. So if you can teach them to move well, and output well, then you when you get an elite athlete in front of you, it's it's pretty pretty easy going. After that, I made a move to work for the EIS, who I still currently work for. My first role there was to work with with England Netball. Did that for uh, about around about a year and a half, and the opportunities came up to work within the GB rowing setup. But I I worked with the the Paralympic squad for around about four years, which was uh, an awesome experience because they did. They did brilliantly in Rio, so it was nice to nice to be part of that. But just to experience a kind of a different environment, thinking you know, how can I how can I solve problems differently outside of kind of what would really what would have been the the textbook method and what you learn at university. And then after after the games, there the opportunity came up to work with within British Swimming. So I've been I've been with British Swimming since June 2017. So. On a, on a day-to-day basis, yeah, I work with a group of around 16 athletes here in Bath at the moment. There's other centres throughout the country. So responsibilities on a, on a day-to-day basis, probably delivering around eight S&C sessions a week. Most of the guys will, will kind of see four, four exposures in the weight room. And then there's uh, preparation around the pre-pool environment where we, we deliver things that may not be appropriate for the weight room or not a good use use of time. So things like trunk and shoulder conditioning, for for example, that w- might water down the strength power work that we're doing in the weight room there. So that's that's it from a from a delivery side of things on a day to day. And and there's the also the responsibility of traveling traveling to for national and international competitions where my my role or my uh, colleagues' role in in the same positions and in other centres would be to deliver land based warm ups and, and priming strategies prior mm-hmm. to. Prior to people racing, and there's also the, there's the nice part of that we get to go some pretty cool places on on training camps. Given that swimming's a fairly low need sport when it when it comes to taking equipment with you, we're not like a rowing where you have to put boats onto the back of a truck. You just need your uh, you need your goggles, your trunks, and then you can go to somewhere really cool to do a warm weather training camp in the in the middle of November or January when it's cold and horrible in the mornings. <laughs> so yeah, I've been pretty pretty fortunate to be part of that. Where's the best place you've been? Oh wow! There's there's a couple of places that stand out. Um, the first, the first place I ever went when I started with swimming, we actually went to to Phuket 
in Thailand. Uh, that, that was before I even really officially started the role because the, the other two S&C coaches that were working for swimming at the time were, were moving on to other sports. So I was asked, look, do you want to come and experience a training camp and a competition for a couple of weeks and obviously we'll, we'll pay you for it? I was like, well, yeah, sweet. I'll, I'll go on a three-week holiday. Where, where are we going? So yes, we went. To, we ended up going to Phuket, which was which was amazing. The facilities obviously were great, and the, the guys trained really well. But we ended up going on a day a day trip to to PP Island, and I remember standing next to the head coach, and he just turned to me and said, "Look, it's it's not always like this," which is a bit of a stark contrast given uh, the pre- previous sport that I worked in with in rowing. You'd normally be somewhere fairly uh, in the middle of nowhere. In, in Europe somewhere where you'd, where you'd lugged all your kit by the side of a lake or, or a river somewhere. But the place that I, I enjoy going to, which we've been to a few times now, is a, a place in Arizona uh, called Flagstaff. We use it as an altitude camp. We normally get to go there in the winter when the snow on the ground, which is, which is pretty cool. It's just a nice, nice town to kind of live, live, your, life, live, your, live your life in whilst, whilst training alongside of it as well. And allows, it, has, it has previously allowed a, a cheeky skiing trip or two on the weekends so yeah very very lucky in comparison to some other practitioners yeah sounds like the life of a swimming athlete is a little bit more glamorous than i originally thought especially if they're going to all of these these different places for some reason you just maybe it's because i haven't worked within swimming but i i know of people that have gone off to different training camps with running with rowing but you don't hear of people doing it that much with swimming but why not? That seems mm-hmm. completely logical to me. It also sounds like the life of a swimming athlete is incredibly busy. If you're providing eight SNC sessions, which they normally attend four of them, and then they've got, mm-hmm. you know, off or out of water conditioning or anything or other conditioning they might do around the pool. And then on top of that, they've got all their swimming. What, what does a typical day look like for uh, an elite swimming athlete? Yeah, you're right. It's 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 pretty full on and pretty busy. So down in here, down here in Bath, we we certainly have a fairly high volume training model, uh, which is the philosophy of the coach. So a high volume day for them might be they they would come in around seven forty five in the morning and they get in the water at, at eight, probably swim between eight and ten. They might have a short break to refuel and do anything they need to do between that time. And then they'd normally come and see me uh, at 10 o'clock for, for an S&C session, which lasts anywhere between 60 and 70 minutes, depending on, depending on the block. But we try and get them in and out of there fairly quickly. The post-morning swim S&C slot is the, is the premier one that everyone is after. So if we're talking those guys, they'd then come back in the afternoon around about 3 o'clock where they'd have a supervised uh, pre-pool land conditioning session. Um, there'll be a different different target to do that day, whether that's some some con- conditioning around the shoulder, hip, or trunk, depending on the, the priorities of that athlete and what their physical profile looks like. And then they'll get back in the pool uh, around about 3.30. So that pre-pool session also acts as a bit of a land warm-up for them. They may, re- they may then swim from 3.30 to around about 5.30. And then they yeah they go home they go to sleep and they and they repeat that they don't do three sessions every day they tend mm. to they tend to repeat that model on a Monday on a Tuesday have a lighter day on a Wednesday the way they'll come in and swim once and then that cycle almost repeats itself in the week so it amounts to on a busy week ten swimming sessions four gym sessions and then four of those supervised pre pool sessions yeah so it's pretty okay. it's pretty busy what 
total volume or distance are they swimming in a typical... Do you measure it in lengths or do you measure it in metres or...? Typ- typical metrics is, is kilometres and it will, it will vary depending on your event and, and the stroke that you do. So we cater for mostly your kind of middle distance guys. So those are the guys, guys that sit around the two, 200 meter distance, some dropping down into the 100 meter distance. So they're, they're probably punching around kind of 40 to 60 kilometers a week in the pool. We also have some guys that are 400 and 800 and some that dabble in the 15. Their volume would be understandably a little bit higher more more aerobic in nature so a little a little a touch higher 60 to 80 um, you occasionally see a big uh, a training spike in a big week where they might swim 100k and then your yeah. guys that are your sprinters they tend to be much much lower volumes so your 50 meter guys they might look at anywhere between 20 and 40 kilometers a week but the caveat to that is that much the same with a with a track sprinter i guess is that a lot of that 30 or 40 kilometers is uh, is technical drilling, not not that demanding in terms of training. So it's just to kind of keep keep the speed in in them, for lack of a better term. Okay, so so it's almost like the speed is reserved for the special sessions. They don't want to just mm-hmm. be oh, we do less volume, so that means we do more at a higher intensity. It's still yeah. the whole. I yeah. don't know. I'm, in my head, I'm almost comparing it to like the 80-20 model, which seems to be very popular within running. Uh, is it a similar thing with swimming where they've got their interval sessions where they really have to swim at high intensity and then the rest is very drill-based focused to try and keep it lower intensity to save them, make them fresh for when they do need to do the high intensity sessions? So, certainly for the case of your, your sprinters, your pure sprinters that are 50 and below, I'd, I'd say that's, that's true. Yeah, so the volume per session is actually not not that high, but it'll take them it'll take them a long old time to get through that. So they'll probably be in the set, in the pool the same amount of time as a as a fifteen hundred meter athlete or an eight hundred meter athlete. But there's 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 a lot of time floating around, clapping their hands on the block, for example, tends <laughs> to be a, a favorite activity of your sprinters. So it's yeah, it's it's work working at that really really high intensity. It's a very polarized model, as you can appreciate. The more volume you add. Uh, in, in, in anything, it tends mm. to water down adaptations at that end of the spectrum. So any kind of type two X fibers, or you hear, hear the hear the term twitch in swimming a lot, mm. is that if we, if they're given too much volume, they oh, lose okay. they lose their twitch. So yeah, and they're they're definitely they're different animals to the to the middle distance and long distance mm. guys. So there's method in the madness. How does the amount of volume they do during a week then influence? the type of SNC support that you provide. I mean, obviously I'm assuming the SNC sport's going to be different for a 50 meter sprinter versus a 800 meter person. But are there a number of things that affect it? You know, you've just swam 10K today. We're going to change your SNC in this way, for example. The first uh, pillar to, to nail down, I guess, is we have very clear kind of objective markers that we want we want our athletes to try and strive for depending on the the length of their event so if you're a 50 meter 50 meter athlete and your event lasts around about 20 seconds naturally we're going to exp- expect you to be stronger more powerful because um, you have less time to to lay that force down and less strokes within the race to do so so we have some some basic markers around what is what is a what's not quite acceptable what's okay and what we would consider world class in terms of our gym output numbers so we have 
key KPI lifts around upper body, lower body strength and power. So to give you give you an example, a sprinting a sprint male athlete, so 50, 50 meters and below, if we're looking at lower lower body trap bar deadlift, something that's that's commonly used, we'd expect them to to be able to perform dub, double their body weight for a, for a single rep. Whereas if you're a middle distance athlete, we'd water that down slightly, maybe to 1.7. And if you're a long distance athlete, if you can do one and a half times your body weight, that, that's, that's acceptable. So that's our paradigm in terms of what we're looking for. If you're, if you're a sprinter, we want you to out, output more on land. If you're a middle distance athlete, slightly less. And if you're a distance athlete, even, even less so because there's Obviously, there's larger physiological components to to those races, and more time to to kind of amend any kind of te- technical flaws. So you see, mm-hmm. you, de- you tend to see your sprinters are very, very technically gifted athletes, and no strokes are missed. Where your your distance athletes tend to be, you can see some slightly ropier techniques, but they're just they have absolutely insane physiology to to make up for that. Mm-hmm. In terms of how we amend what happens after they've swam 10k there's the, the way the way our week is structured there's not there's not a huge amount of wiggle room for how we kind of auto regulate with with it within the week it's the the and and the, na- the nature of swimming being largely a concentric only sport you don't you don't tend to see huge amounts of fatigue coming into mm. the weight room possibly after large kick sets you might you might kind of readjust what the, what they're doing in terms of the load that they have on the bar but it's it's often just a a, com- a conversation with the coach and the swimmer if it's been a particularly big set or um, that athlete presents as as fatigued and ha- know- knowing them fairly well you can normally tell when somebody's uh, not not in a great place it's a discussion at the start of the session around okay well these this is this is our, our objective of the day like it's to hit x amount of repetitions on this exercise but giving giving them an understanding around look you, I, might, I might have prescribed 100 kilos for you to do for five sets of five reps here, but that's based on a, a theoretical 1RM of what, whatever that may be. But given you've just swam 10K, that's, uh, that's dampened that, that 1RM, so we're going to need to bring that down. So the, we, we do tend to use a fair amount of VBT devices to help, help us with that. We've, we've become less of a let's chase numbers on the bar, but let's chase the... The appropriate velocity that kind of correlates with what that percentage would be, because mm. you do you do tend to see that fluctuate through the week and through through certain blocks as well, which works well for them because as it's a stopwatch sport, they're very very numbers focused, so they like that side of things. So more than happy to to keep that as a carrot for them, but move them away from grinding out terrible reps with with what I've what I've written down mm. in terms of kilos, but actually having a, a loading window to hit based on what velocity you can produce on, the, on those key exercises. Mm. Do you find that the fatigue is very general? Is it, can it be quite localised purely? Uh, the way you described, it's a concentric focused sport. So obviously the fatigue is going to be completely different to like running. And then when you started describing about why you use the trap bar deadlift, uh, and I was thinking, oh, yeah, I can see the link between trap bar deadlift and like running. I can also see it from a general strength training exercise link into lower limb strength for the general athlete. But obviously the kicking motion is different to like a running motion. Do you find sometimes the they have like localized fatigue in the hip flexors or the hip extensors or maybe around the shoulder joint that you might think, okay, we're going to make some changes here? 
Yeah, I think there, there are a couple of examples that, and, and, you, and, you, and you've struck on them definitely. Like, um, yeah, kick, a kick set is, is is very localized in terms of the, the the joint range of motion that you're going to be using and, and the primary muscle groups. So pe- people will often struggle a little bit in terms of lower body lower body strength training exercises just because of their the kind of local buildup of metabolites and just. Kick, send, kick sets just tend to be kind of horrible high volume sessions, which gives, yeah. gives you that kind of general. I don't fog move of during kick drills. I don't know how. <laughs> I, I don't know how they do it. Literally, just stay <laughs> in the center of the pool and don't move. Yeah, yeah. So absolutely, yeah. You can you can be as strong as you like in the gym, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be a good kicker. What we yeah. tend to find is that with our with our really talented swimmers, if you give them those general general physical qualities, then they're they're able to then transfer that well into into the the skill of swimming one of the things that i found really interesting since i've since working in this sport is that the, the kick actually contributes very little to to propulsion uh, if, you, if we're talking freestyle it's obviously largely upper body propulsion so the other thing that tends to suffer that i'm kind of still working on a bit of a bit of an algorithm if uh, for lack of a better term is to is how we slide kind of predicted one RM up and down based on chin up or pull up variations. So most people would present after a heavy session in the pool, able to hit pretty much what, what we're after in terms of a loading window, whether that's a lower body, general lower body exercise, uh, some kind of horizontal pushing exercise or, or horizontal rowing. The thing that tends to, to really suffer is their ability to vertically pull. So your, your chin up or vertical or chin up or, or pull up variations. So which makes a lot of sense given it's a it's it's largely a vertical pulling sport if you if you think about it in that context although I'll be I'll be there they're flipped horizontally. Hmm. Yeah, I can definitely see that. And funny enough that was going to be my next question. Um we had Fergus Crawley who's a hybrid athlete on the podcast a few weeks ago. And he on a particular event he did a powerlifting total and then went for a sub 12 hour Ironman. And he said during the bench press, like it was a heavy bench press, and he, after he performed it, he, the first thing he just felt was like, okay, that's going to affect the swim. And later on, he reflected on that, yeah, I actually made the, the swimming much more difficult. And I started thinking, well, are there certain exercises you avoid to try and, <laughs> try and avoid any negative transfer coming from the S&C towards the swimming stroke if it's a very vertical pulling exercise you probably focus more on that if you started doing mm-hmm. too much upper body pushing like a bench press does that negatively mm-hmm. affect the swimming athlete for me this is a bit of an organization of training question and how how it how the swim sessions are set up across the week it also a little bit around what phase of training we're in in terms of the pull so aerobic development phases is a good time to be an S&C coach within swimming because I'm pretty much given free reign to, to, to really get stuck into the guys and, and do some heavy work because for the coach, there's, there's less of a, uh, a need for them to hit certain turnaround times in the pool or certain splits. That, that's less of a consideration and it tends to be very general physical prep during that stage. However, when, when they're expected to swim faster, we, we tend to do all of our vertical pulling immediately after the morning swim. So they've got a, a larger window of time to, to get back in uh, and recover before the, after, before the afternoon session, which tends to be more of a, more of a key set. And the same, the same goes prior to any kick sets. We don't want to do anything that's too 
heavily quad dominant squatting, trap bar deadlifting, hand supported split squat variations we tend to use a lot of because swimmers tend to be a, a little bit floppy on land. So that's one of our main modalities. We'll try and avoid that prior to any key kick sets where they're required to hit certain splits and turnarounds because yeah, the general general fatigue and obviously our, any kind of eccentric damage is, is going to affect the function of, of the musculature to allow them to do that. Yeah. Is it all very acute? So you may do some upper body exercises like a bench press, as long as it was kind of away from the the key training sessions. It is, you know, I mean, you obviously do it in terms of picking key exercises so it doesn't affect the next training session happening on that day, but that doesn't necessarily mean you wouldn't do it on another day when they weren't doing swimming training, for example. It's more very acutely. That's the lens that we try and view it through is like, let's protect those sessions on that day. Mm-hmm. If we zoom out a little bit, it's kind of trying to organize, yeah, what, what people's kind of DOMS response might look like. And that's different for different people, whether that tends to peak 24 hours or 48, 48 hours. Because obviously when they're expected, when they're expected to swim faster uh, and hit certain key positions, if they're, if they're super sore and tight through their lats and pecs, for example, we're trying to place those exercises in in the week far enough away from that really key set so that they're allowed to, that they're, that they're able to do those things. So yeah, there's a, there's a consideration in that, but yeah, the, the, the first, the first one is well, what are the key sessions in that week and can we, can we best, best protect those? But it's kind of a sliding scale of if we're in a general, general prep phase, which is aerobic in the pool and we can, we need to pay less attention to that. And, and the coach is keen for the athletes to move on physically on land. And then when they, they move into that anaerobic phase, it's like we will still train those exercises, but our approach tends to be we bring the volume down uh, and the intensity and with the theory of those guys have trained the exercise frequently enough that they're pretty good at recovering from it by that stage. So that the DOMS that they may get and any kind of suppression of, of the nervous system is, isn't, that, isn't that bad yet. So... Much, much like swimming training, they, they, don't, they don't get bored easily. It's, 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 it's 30 hours a week and swimming up and down looking at a black line. So doing the same exercises week on week doesn't seem to bother them too much as, as long as they're making progress and it's not blunting any of their, their ability to, to actually swim fast. So Yeah, sounds like a so superpower. Cool. You know, the, <laughs> the ability to you know, keep doing the same thing over and over again because it's you know much further down the line when you're going to see the benefits of it, I guess. With your bipolar conditioning sessions, you talked earlier about they used to do some stuff which you try and keep away from the main S&C sessions, not quite the warm-up, but conditioning for the certain joints which they need to make sure are working appropriately for their particular stroke. What, what do those sessions consist of? It's simply, it's, it's uh, local muscular endurance conditioning mm. so tissue conditioning the the philosophy that i kind of view physical prep for swimming through is, is is through asking a number of performance questions the first one being can can you hit can you hit the key positions required for the sport uh, and that obviously is a combination of mobility flexibility and, and your motor control the next one is are you strong enough in those key positions that's where the the weight the weight room tends to tends to lie and and do you do you have the the capacity to sustain those key positions. So, a pre-pool sessions tend tend to hit though the first and the third performance questions. There is can, to do. Do you need to be working on 
finding kind of end range shoulder flexion, which you may struggle with if you have a tight T-spine, for example, or just poor kind of motor control of the, of the posterior shoulder, for example, or do you, do, do you, have, do you have great mobility uh, and pretty good motor control, but you, you just lack the, lack the tissue conditioning to, to sustain hitting those positions in the pool? But on, on the ground, re- realist, realistically, that, that looks like mon- Monday and Friday, we'll do a, a basic trunk conditioning circuit, which is graded based on their, their cap- capability in our trunk conditioning. So we tend to have levels one through three. Uh, the group will do a, a lead circuit. If we, if we took an example of a, of a side plank, for example, level one, maybe you, you've scored under, under 60 seconds on a lateral hold test, for example. And so you're going to do, your exercise would just be to work a simple side plank. Level two, maybe you're working with a partner and they're going to provide manual resistance to actually add some load through the trunk to challenge you some more. And then the level on top of that, so that's a, that's a static strength exercise for the trunk. And then level three, maybe a, a dynamic version of that. So you're still going to work with a partner. So you'll do some hip lifts in, in, a, in a side plank position, but they're going to provide some resistance on the way up and on the way down because you, you scored higher on that trunk capacity test. And then they tend to have four or five of those exercises and they may do that between they may do between two and three circuits of that. And then there's, there's similar structures for, for the shoulder and, and the hip on, on some of the other days. There's the shoulder obviously is of, is of massive importance. So there's a, there's a general tissue conditioning and local muscular, muscular endurance piece. And then the guys will also have individual work ons around finding kind of end, end range strength, getting, getting into those key positions. Hip work tends to be a little more general and it may be something that you and I take for granted, <laughs> given, that, given that we've probably played and participated in land-based sports most of our life and have spent a fair amount of time in a weight room. But it's somewhat challenging for, for swimmers a lot of the time, even if they're fairly seasoned athletes. If you, if you think about it's an early specialization sport and they've spent a vast amount of time in a, in a somewhat anti-gravity environment. So they tend to be a little bit floppy on land and, and lack some of those general athletic skills and, and stability around around key joints where we'd want them to have a little bit more stability. Uh, yeah, you certainly see some interesting things and I've been on a bit of a journey with, with that since my time in the sport. Did that lead you to go towards your research question? Because I know your research is in determining land-based metrics for mm-hmm. swimmers, is that right? And I remember when we were going back and forth with emails, you said there's a you know a bit of a story of how you've developed your research questions and your research area. Is this all this kind of led towards your research work? Yeah, I think I think so. Um, the ca- the caveat to this is I'm an absolutely terrible swimmer. So coming into the program was was a little, was a little daunting for me in the sense that I was like, oh, when are they going to get me in a pool and, and figure out that I have no idea what I'm talking about. But I first started kind of mulling it around. Was just, I just want to understand the sport some more. But didn't come up with a, with a research question probably for around about the six months, around about six months to, to a year, because I just wanted to kind of observe what swimmers look like on land. The first, I remember the first meeting sitting with the head coach and after the, after the initial interview, sitting me down and said, well, you do the land and we'll do the pool. Which is terrifying, but exciting all at the same time. So, okay, well, you, tr- you trust me to do a good job, but also I'm like, well, well, where do I go with this? I don't really know anything about the sport. So kind of set, to, set myself to try and unpick 
know, what what makes people go fast and the the first question started to arise just by looking a little bit at the research but also kind of what do people look like on land as an elite swimmer so the re- the research tended to suggest that if you're if you're stronger in your upper body relative to your mass then your your distance per stroke is going to be greater if you if your distance per stroke is greater your average velocity is going to be higher obviously the, the yeah the determinants of free swim performance are a combination of distance per stroke and your stroke rate so that, that there was some there was some evidence in the research that yeah if you're stronger relative to your mass you'll hold a greater distance per stroke and you'll hold that for longer relative to your weaker com- counterpart you're going to go quicker and that tended to hold up from what you saw in the weight room it's that those guys with stronger upper bodies tended to be the ones that are swimming faster times. The, but there's also a piece around, well, what's, what's more important for me? Because on occasion, I'd jump in with some, with some circuits with the guys. Although I was the, the strongest person in the room, if you looked at kind of chin-up bench press numbers, we, and we were doing kind of a general press-up, trunk exercise, pull-up, move on to another trunk exercise and roll that round. round. Round one, I'd be able to hang with them. And then round two, I'd be absolutely nowhere and they could just sustain. So it kind of got me scratching my head around, well, what's, are we missing something? Is, is maximal strength more, of more importance or is there a kind of a strength endurance component of the puzzle that we don't really know about? And then the third major observation was around kind of people's ability to express force into the ground, which for, for me was like, well, that's, that's going to underpin your start and your turn performance. Again, looked at the research. If you're stronger and more powerful in terms of your lower body, you you, you start quicker. Swimming start is termed uh, your time to 15 meters, so that's your drive off the block into the water and then underwater fly kicking until you break break the surface. And that, there's there's some more concrete evidence of that. But I saw some weird things with the guys in the weight room looking at the, looking at them jump, kind of just test testing them when we came around to take uh, performance metrics. 95% of the swimming population had a much much higher watts per kilo or power output when they're doing a squat jump versus a counter movement jump, which again got me scratching my head around, well, am I doing something wrong here? Or is, is, is it purely because you've been in, anti, in an anti-gravity environment for so much of your life, any kind of stretch shortening cycle has been trained out of you? So basically took all of those questions around what's more important for free swim performance is that max strength. Or is it muscular endurance in terms of the upper body? And what's most important for underpinning start performance? Is it more max strength or is it how you express that force in, in, a, in a powerful manner? So it was a pretty pretty simple study to conduct because every 12 to 14 weeks, we look at measures of max strength for the upper and low, the lower body. We look at muscular endurance tests for the upper and the lower body. So our typical metrics tend to be your one RM chin, uh, your one RM bench press for most athletes. Uh, for lower body, we tend to look at an isometric mid-thigh pull, although, although we use other training methods to move that on. And then we look, also look at a squat and a counter-movement jump. Tests for the upper body tend to be a chin-up test to failure and a press-up test to failure on a metronome of one second up, one second down, just so we can standardize it. So those, that's, that's, how we, that's how I got to kind of how am I going to find out? And then we looked at mapping mapping all of those results against our pool uh, analysis, our race analysis data that we get. So we've got a really cool piece of software that 
spits out every metric that you'd want to know about swimming in terms of time to 15 meters. What was your, what was your distance per stroke across this portion of the race? What was your speed into the turn, your rotation speed, your turn out to, to five meters, for example? And what was your stroke rate at different points in the race? And then you can figure out kind of what, what was your degradation of distance per stroke across the race. So what's, what's your fatigability look like? So yeah, we, we just did a big correlation study around mapping those, mapping those land-based metrics to, to what we saw from, from race, race times when they're in a, in a tapered state. That sounds, that sounds really cool. And really, you can get some practical advice from that because, okay, you've got key things which anyone could potentially test. So say you were my coach, like I could go away and work on key things. Okay, improving my pressing strength, 1RM for the upper body, doing the same for the pulling strength, so like a chin, working on the ability to perform those reps to failure and then working on expressing force as quickly as possible through the floor. And there's like a general rule of thumb, would be would those be the the key elements you'd recommend anyone that's trying to improve their swimming performance i would say i would say so but you must you've got to earn the right to do it specific especially if you're a swimmer if we go back to the performance questions that i talked about previously are around can you hit the key positions are you strong in those key positions and can you sustain those uh, key positions i talk to athletes and coaches around those things around strong in key positions is, is the engine whereas can you repeatedly hit those key positions or own those key positions as the chassis so having a big bench press and having a massive chin is great as long as you have optimal technique with, within those. So That's what I don't have. Time and time again, I'm sure, um, I'm sure you can name and shame a number of athletes that are great in the weight room but, but terrible at their sport. So developing athletes or those that, that are kind of moving towards kind of the high performance system. If I'm working with S&C coaches outside of outside of the national center here or, or kind of any athletes that are asking advice that my my first thing is look you need you need to to be able to master your body weight first so the dream the dream for me is any any 18 year old athlete that's entering a center if we took a female female athlete for example if you could come into a center and do five to ten perfect pull-ups 20 perfect press-ups without, without any compensation. You can work well on a single leg in a split squat position, for example. You can brace your trunk, you can rotate, you can flex, you can extend, and you have the ability to hinge. Then that's great. And then it's basically just earning the right to add more load to those movements. So if we went, if we zoomed back into real swimming specifics, then yeah, you're dead right. If you're, if you're stronger in terms of your upper body relative to your mass, then yeah, your distance per stroke is likely to be likely to be longer, and you're likely to be able to sustain that for, for a greater period of time. But you also need yeah the the specific muscular endurance components to be able to sustain that. So the the two go hand in hand. And in terms of skills off the block and off the wall, yeah, you need to be relatively strong to to propel yourself through the water. But you also need to be able to do that in an explosive manner, preferably preferably in a squat-type manner because that was our most accurate correlate of power, power metric from, from the study. Surprisingly, the, 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 the mid-thigh pull was the, was the biggest correlate. So being stronger 
through your lower body seems to be of greater importance relative to being powerful. But being powerful in a in a movement that somewhat mimics the sporting action is is more of, of greater importance than a counter movement jump if we're talking really specific swimming. Okay. And when you say they've got to earn certain positions, I automatically go back to thinking about this, the shoulder joint and how such a extreme range of motion it has to go through. Does that often get screened? You know, the ability to the, for the glenohumeral joint to reach extreme ends of flexion and I guess abduction as well. And you start talking about, you know, how if you have a lack of movement in the thoracic or the post side of the, the shoulder, especially scapular mechanics, if they're do you do any screening around that to try and make sure that, okay, let's make sure they can hit these certain positions before we start loading them? Yeah, no, absolutely. So that, that sits largely in the medical team's department, okay, yeah. but they, they do an, an extensive job of that. So there, there are certain tests around mobility and, and also uh, isolated shoulder strength. So they'll look at, they'll look at things like ability to hold hold streamline against the wall like physically can you get to the uh, the maximum amount of shoulder flexion that you'll be required to hit whilst whilst in a streamline position in the pool um if you can't if you can't hit a good streamline position you're already at a competitive disadvantage because the your drag profile goes up significantly so they they look they look at that they'll look at your 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 t-spine rotation they'll look at uh, left to right they'll look at things like your ability to actively take the shoulders into flexion in a, in a prone position. If, again, if you can't, can't get your hands off the floor in that position for, for swimming, you're at a, a fairly big competitive disadvantage. What we tend to see with our athletes is that they don't lack mo- passive mobility. They, t- they tend to be quite floppy creatures, <laughs> but they often lack the motor control to, to, to hit those positions. And, and other structures tend to, tend to tighten up as a result. Then they'll look at isolated, isolated shoulder strength tests around... Inter- internal and external rotation of the glenohumeral joint. Obviously, internal rotation in abduction is a, is a very swimming specific specific movement relative to a freestyle stroke. So they'll, they'll look at force left to right, and then the ratio of external to internal rotation. So your your external, they look, we look for a ratio um, between the external rotators and internal rotators. You'll have to forgive me because I'd have to call one of them to to get an exact number on that. Certain threshold that they they want them to hit just from a shoulder health perspective, which is which is somewhat a, a battle uh, on on occasion because most of the guys tend to have incredibly strong internal rotators just because of the no, the nature of their sport as they do most of their their swimming and freestyle. So there's a there's a big push around shoulder health around developing the the structures of the posterior shoulder and the, the external rotators just to to keep that joint where it should be. Uh, and, and keep it ni- nice and healthy. Well, there's so much practical information there that I can't wait to actually take that and implement <laughs> it into my own training. Hopefully, my swimming will improve. But uh, Andy, thank you so much for coming on to the Progress Theory. If anyone has any additional questions, where can they contact you, like on social media or an email or anything like that? My, myself and my wife, we do have a S&C social media page, um, a small, small business that we are... In the in the early stages of developing, called Victus Perform, which is can, can be found on Instagram, Victus underscore Perform. The intention is to is to launch some some products for athletes around March, not specifically swimming related, 
but that doesn't uh, stop any anyone that kind of wants to get in touch and ask questions around swimming. I'll be more than happy to answer them. But yeah, if you do have any questions, just drop, drop us a DM and hopefully we can provide some insight. And, yeah. and the reason we started it is just to be able to give access to uh, people some access to, to coaches that have worked within the high performance system and are looking to, to develop their athleticism. Brilliant. Yeah. Well, I will put that information in the show notes and then when I'm advertising Great. it on so your episode on social media, I'll also advertise uh, Victus Perform as well. So absolutely. Look, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it sounds really cool. But Andy, once again, thank you so much for coming on to the Progress Theory. I'll see you soon. Thanks, Phil. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Mm-hmm.